The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello, welcome back to the James Bond A to Z podcast. This is our second episode exploring the life and work of Timmy D., Timothy Dalton, the fourth actor to play James Bond on film. Uh, Definitely doesn't like being called Timmy D. I'm just going to throw that in there now. T Dalts? Yeah, that's the one. He likes that. T Dalts. Okay. Yeah, T Dalts. Okay. Um, last episode, we covered uh, Timothy Dalton's life and career up to Living Daylights. So, this episode will explore his second film, arguably his better film, I would say, uh, The li- uh, License to Kill. His better James Bond film. But, well, let's argue about that when we come to it. Okay, fine. We'll get to that point. We'll get to that point. But yeah, it's been a fascinating episode to, to research. There's no um, official biographies of Timothy Dalton out there. Um, and so there's been a lot of um, diving into the archives to look at what people have said about him, what he said. And also he's very sort of distant, not distance himself, but he's not one to speak a lot about Bond itself. So uh, it's been an interesting one, I think. Uh, and I've learned a lot about Timothy Dalton. Mm. About you too. Yeah, same. I think it's because he's uh, he's not the the most known Bond actor, so you don't really delve further into his career, really. And when you do, you find stuff out that yeah, you didn't know. Yeah, he's not he's not really um, in comparison to a lot of the Bonds who you would know about through mainstream culture. Dot Dalton's career isn't mainstream culture. Most of it's fairly, you know, classically trained sort of acting roles and some other ones which I'll come up with in a bit which I'd never know anything about but as always I will be covering many of um, Dalton's more period drama based you love it things yeah I get, I get for some reason I get allotted the period dramas I don't know why I don't know if that's short area of expertise isn't it well it is now <laughs> Right. So, yeah, this is the second part of a two-part episode. We're hoping to get another one out of Timothy Dalton as well after this one, speaking to someone about Dalton. But um, we will crack on with the episode. Um, As always, with the actor specials, it's worth noting that The Living Daylights and uh, License to Kill will get their own entire episode. So if it feels like we're glossing over the details of that, uh, of those films, that's why, because we'll go into those in much more depth when we get to them in the alphabet so on with the show (laughs) 
1988, Timothy Dalton appeared in a play called A Touch of the Poet. Uh, it's a Eugene O'Neill play and he starred in it with Vanessa Redgrave, who, as we discussed in the last episode, he was dating at the time. Uh, it played at the Young Vic, the Theatre Royal Brighton and then the Haymarket Theatre in London. And it was the first time the play had ever been done in London. Timothy said, as soon as Vanessa gave me the script, I knew we had to do it. This is just so funny and touching and moving and true a play that it has to be done. And a miracle for us uh, was that no one in London had ever tried it before. The Guardian praised Dalton's wonderful comic vanity, calling him an actor who has steadily matured over the years. And it's quite interesting, obviously, when someone is in in a bigger role as James Bond looking at the things that they do immediately after and see the scrutiny that they get put under because it just it just puts everything under a microscope doesn't it mm. when you're the James Bond and you're appearing in something and so the new york times said mr dalton is galvanizing full of blarney without forsaking the wit visible in his james bond but also plausibly a poetic byronic hero so yeah so that was a period play uh, touch of the poet and just before we move on to license to kill in 1989 timothy was involved in a campaign called save the rose which was to save the remains of the elizabethan theater in southwark i don't know if you remember this um, well interesting you should bring this up because i i was just talking to you about the terry wogan interview yes and he was wearing a red rose in that interview mm-hmm. and he, they talk about it in, in that t- uh, interview so, yeah, ah, I do know a bit about it. Interesting. So, yeah, so he was uh, campaigning to save the remains of this theatre, uh, which is on the South Bank, I believe. Uh, some other actors who were involved in the campaign were Vanessa Redgrave, obviously, Dustin Hoffman, Ian McKellen and James Fox. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, they actually were able to stop the. Basically, there was going to be a tower block built over it and they, they were able to stop the construction. And work continues at the, the Rose Theatre to this day, preserving it and putting stuff on there. Yeah, it's next to the globe, isn't it? But it's underground. Yes. I've never been in mm. it. So now we move on to his second Bond outing. And remarkably, it, the budget was slashed. Can you guess which film was costing so much money at this point? So this is 1989. What film so was it? MG- was it MGM? So it's a Bond. It's another Bond film that they're, they're still paying for. Oh. View to Kill. <laughs> no, I spent about £3.50 on that. <laughs> <laughs> It's Moonraker. They're still they're still paying out for that, oh, what? which is slashing the budget for this and taking a knock on effect. Which meant, wow, it was shot completely outside the UK. So it's the the only Bond to not have been shot anywhere in the UK, and they didn't even use Pinewood. They used a studio's Churubusco in Mexico and did other shoot in the United States. So I found that interesting that you know a decade later mm. they can still be paying out. The script, so it was originally called Licence Revoked. It got changed because they screen tested it and didn't believe that American audiences would know what that meant and confused it with driving licence being revoked. Uh, John Glenn found that hard to believe, but accepted it. So this was written completely with Dalton's characterization of Bond in mind. So they'd seen how he portrayed Bond in the first one and then they'd wanted to you know, start from the ground up and relied on Dalton's that dark portrayal of Bond uh, that is more violent, and obviously it got that 15 rating uh, from BBFC. And he also insisted on performing the majority of his stunts, which is something he also did in the first one, and he continued that throughout to the point where he says, Benicio del Toro cut off my finger 
It wasn't really his fault, but we were doing the scene where I'm hanging over a meat grinder and he's cutting away at the wires holding me. Something went wrong. Come to think of it, we probably shouldn't have had a sharp knife. So, uh, yeah, that that's what happens when you do your own stunts, I guess. He also had another a, a mistake that happened in a, another stunt that he was doing. So in the finale, where he's jumping across the tankers, he says, I leap across, climb the ladder with all the bullets going off, bam, 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 and the klaxon means cut goes off. I'm thrilled. I know I've done a good job, but I look around, everyone's pissing themselves. I look down and I'm in underpants. My trousers are hanging off my ankles. <laughs> so that's <laughs> quite a nice. Classic carry on film. <laughs> yeah, they, they should. Well, they would have left that in if that was Roger, wouldn't they? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because of the shoot, he did get homesick while filming in Mexico. So that was a knock-on effect of not being in the UK. And he said that he really missed a good pint of bitter. Did he take a suitcase of beans, tins of beans with him? <laughs> like, like Mr Bean. <laughs> I think um, you can tell this film's shot somewhere else there, isn't it? It looks, yeah, definitely. It looks like no other Bond film, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got yeah. a different vibe to it. Yeah, definitely. On top of the fact that it, it's got that 80s vibe and the more violent feel to it as well. So, yeah, I mean, I won't go into any more detail on that. We will cover Licence to Kill. It looks like it's going to be an interesting one as well. Yeah, and there's a great book on the making of Licence to Kill. I don't know if, if you guys have, have got this one by I Sally Hibbin. I have seen was, it, yeah. Yeah, she was one of the... It was, I think it's the only time that some, uh, someone's been invited to set to chart the making of the film from start to finish. Mm. Um, and it's it's really good book. It's fascinating. Obviously made at the time when Timothy was Bond and was always going to be Bond. But um, yeah. So it's obviously difficult to see through the context of him after Bond. But it's mm. it's a it's a really good making of, of book. All right, so a bit about... The, how it was received, Licence to Kill. I won't go into too much depth about the film itself. I'll try and go into the, more about Timothy Dalton and how his reception was received. Licence to Kill, when it's... Oh wait, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got 77%. It received 2 out of 5 by Empire, and it's got 6.6 6 out of 10 on IMDb. It's rated as by IMDb's poll as the 13th best Bond film. 007 Magazine also rated as the 13th best Bond film, and then it's 10th in the Rotten Tomatoes poll. So... It's a bit of a middling, wasn't it? It sits right in the centre of Bond. It's not it's not like one of the best ones. And right for a lot of people, it's not one of the worst ones either. So we talked about that budget. It, it got about $156 million um, at global box office um, on 30... What, how many, did you say 32 million, BJ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't say it. Is it around I didn't say budget? it, but it is that, yeah. Yeah, um, which I, I think... I imagine that must have played into the marketing as well because it didn't do very well at the US box office. But I think with like a Bond film, even if it's rubbish, it still does quite well at the box office relatively because it's Bond. Yeah. So I imagine there was probably cuts in the marketing around that as well. So the, I think from what I understand, there weren't as many tie-in campaigns around it in America, but it did well at the start in the box office. Like I think it matched Living Daylights at least. But then I think it tailed off. And I think mm. the, that's always a word of mouth issue and people not making repeat viewings. I think if it does well in its opening weekend, but then tails off, it's just people aren't telling people to go and see it. I know that at the time, I think that if it was Cubby wasn't very pleased with the trailers for the film either. I don't know if you've seen the trailers for the film, but they're very weird. They're very, they're, they don't play, play up being mm. a, a Bond film. Well, that's one of the, 
the things that crops up quite a bit is that it's it looks different than a lot of Bond films. Mm. It feels different from the first look. So it probably that had quite a big effect on it because people, you know, with Bond, people like to see the same sort of thing. They get a new Bond actor in and it's not quite what they're expecting. They tend to feel a bit funny about it. Same probably goes for the way that the film is set and everything. And, and obviously, License to Kill does look very different than a lot of the other Bond films. Uh, another thing that happened as well was that in that year, it was the same year that Connery was in Last Crusade. So that was obviously a massive win at the box office. So that may have had some sort of assisting factors. Yeah, I saw the the films that it was released alongside. It's Lethal Weapon 2 as well, wasn't it? It was a big year. Batman Batman 89. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty big. And I think it's the last one that was released in the summer, right? The last James Bond film to be released in the summer. Oh, I don't know. Because everyone after that, I think, was released in the winter because it performed so badly against the other opposing films. Well, I've got quite a long quote here from a friend of the podcast, John Cork, who kind of sums it up quite nicely. He says, uh, there are a number of factors that hurt License to Kill at the box office. First, they wrote for Dalton and they felt Dalton should be the anti-Roger Moore, a serious, angry 007. Dalton in person is is an incredibly charming man and I think writing a character that way hurt the film. Although Richard Maybaum is given co-writing credit, he was basically not involved past writing the treatment because of the Writers Guild strike of 1988. And there was just too much slack in the script that went before the cameras. Budget constraints, I think, also limited what John Glenn could do. It's a big film that ends up feeling small. And Glenn had to move through scenes fast. Too fast. Shots are not well composed. And I think it's the worst lit Bond film in the series. So I, everything John says there, I pretty much think hits a nail on the head from the way I feel about that film. Also, an interesting bit of information from Raymond Benson, who says... With License to Kill, a lot of the material came from the novel Live and Let Die and the short story The Hildebrand Rarity. In 1989, when the movie came out, I felt it was exhilarating because he, we were seeing Fleming material accurately portrayed, edgy and gritty. Perhaps it was too soon to do that in 1989, especially after the Roger Moore years. It didn't totally fly with audience at the time. Many appreciated it, though, especially fans I know who are really into the books. So a bit of a mixed, mixed bag of responses to the film there. A few other ones, a few, a few of the responses from people. Uh, the Sunday Times said, uh, it's quite an interesting one, said, any vestiges of the Gentleman Spy by Ian Fleming have now gone and in its place is a bond that is remarkably close indeed and action to the eponymous hero of the Batman film, which I'd never thought about before, but mm. it's interesting you brought that one up as another film that came around at the time. And then Eber, who seems to always be impressed by any Bond film whenever I read one of his reviews from retrospective reviews, he said um, he gave the film three and a half stars out of four, saying the stunts all look convincing and the effects on the closing sequence is exhilarating. License to Kill is one of the best of the recent Bonds. So there you go. Recently, uh, a lot of people have done sort of retrospective reviews of of the film. And again, it's a bit of a mixed bag, especially when it comes down to Dalton. Empire said two out of five stars, saying Dalton is really quite hopeless, concluding that uh, he may look the part, but to move Dalton fails the boots the scuba gear, the automobiles left in by Moore and Connery. And Time Out also did another review of Ice Girl and they said that Dalton was unfortunate, saying one has to feel for Dalton, who was never given a fair shake by either of the films in which he appeared. So there you go. Bit of a mixed bag for uh, License to Kill there. But I, I do find this with a lot of people. I think it is a little bit of a, a, a polarising film. Uh, I'm, I know you, you at the start you were saying, arguably, it's the better of the two Daltons. I completely disagree with that. I really not a fan of license to kill i actually quite like the living daylights um right so just because you're deciding vote then brendan where do you stand on that license to kill for me yeah it's, yeah mm. it's it's just such a 
a raw Bond that he's playing, and uh, like a precursor to Daniel Craig, obviously. And um, I, I quite like the violence in it. It's quite realistic and grounded. It's brutal, isn't it? There are some really, really nasty kills in this film. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're right. I, a... I think I think what we discussed before was like uh, when we were talking about from Russia with Love, a, a film that transcends Bond to be something something else like a, just a great spy film i think this does transcend almost a bond film i think it's better it, it's it's a great it's a well i think it's a good sort of crime movie but maybe not the greatest of bond films mm. but i think well, i'm arguing the opposite there instead of transcending i'm saying it descends <laughs> bond in the it goes from it goes from being it t- takes bond from being a, like a massive film with lots of things happening to being an episode of like the Bond series or something like that, where like being like Miami Vice or something like that. Whenever I think about a Bond film, I tend to think of it in terms of, you know, you have all the sets in your head and everything. And when there's a Bond film, there's loads of stuff happening. You can go, oh, I remember that scene there and that scene there and all those different locations that go they go to. It just seems very samey to me. I can't ping, pinpoint many scenes that don't look the same. And I think Living Daylights, there's lots of different locations in that film, whereas License to Kill just doesn't have them. It feels like it's a, a, a story set in the same place the whole time. I know it does change, but it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I, I guess it just depends on what you want. Um, it, to me, it just feels different to the other Bond films, and that mm. that in itself is is refreshing. Um, yeah. Hmm. But I, I I don't know. I really like Timothy Dalton in it. Um, well, I, I've, got, I've got quite a lot of depth there, so we'll save the rest of that for the... Um, license to kill spectacular sure um, and then um, let's move back on to some less um, bond related well, well actually still bond related items yeah so after um, we talked about it in Daniel Craig's era is the sort of commercial opportunities that come with being James Bond and one of those opportunities presented to Timothy Dalton was a TV and cinema advert for Lark cigarettes and I know we touched upon... Was it Daniel Craig that we talked about the Lark cigarette? No, it was Pierce Brosnan who did Brosnan, a, a, a Brosnan, Lark, yeah. Lark cigarette t- commercial. Timothy Dalton does one as well. So in 1992, he stars in this one and it's directed by an Australian filmmaker called Russell Mulcahy, who was the director of Highlander. So he'd worked with Sean Connery. And in the advert, Dalton, uh, as I mean, he looks like James Bond. He's wearing like a tuxedo. Uh, he's being pursued apro- across the rooftops by a bad guy who's got like a splint, spinning blade yo-yo weapon. And he dodges the blade and it embeds into this giant neon sign above him. And then Dalton flips the switch and that electrocutes the bad guy. So it's kind of like an odd job ripoff. And then uh, Dalton quips, need a light. And then he says the catchphrase, speak lark. Which doesn't, it's a crap catchphrase if you ask me. (laughs) So actually, License to Kill was one of the first films to get a a health warning attached to it because of the amount of smoking that Timothy Dalton does in the film. So, uh, and I think it's the last film that Bond smokes cigarettes in. Um, It's funny that because I don't even associate Dalton with smoking. I can see Mm. more smoking his cigars and Sean Connery smoking. Dalton didn't need to smoke it. It reminds me of. You know, like a kid at school who, like the kids are at the bike shed smoking and then one kid doesn't really smoke, and but he's smoking to fit in. But that feels like <laughs> Dalton in, in his films. He just shouldn't be smoking. Well, there's a bit where a cigarette packet is used as a, is it a bomb detonator? I can't yeah. Remember, I think. Yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, Lark Cigarettes, they paid $350,000 to appear in Licence to Kill. But yeah, that's the, the Lark Cigarette commercial. It's quite interesting. It's worth looking at and seeing like Dalton as Bond a few years after Licence to Kill. So that's his last yeah, performance, did- performance as Bond. I don't know if you can call it that, but... Um, in a way. Let's call it that. <laughs> well, he did a lot of loose performances as Bondian style characters later on. Mm. So it's probably not, it's probably about the same as those ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Pierce Brosnan last to smoke, wasn't he? And died of the day. The cigar. That's cig- cigarettes. Oh, right. Last okay. to smoke cigarettes. Cigars, just, just, he does smoke. Just trying to keep the emails at bay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> From Lark. From Lark, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, in 1990, he starred in a film called The King's Whore. It was an entry into the, the Cannes Film Festival in, in that year. It's set in the 17th century, so you should be doing this one weekly. This is period. Yeah, I'm a bit annoyed about this. <laughs> um, it's an Italian nobleman weds an impoverished countess and then is wooed by a duke and faces um, a pressure to succumb to, to his wishes. So it's a classic you know, period piece, I would say. Uh, and he says, I've come to like the title. I wasn't sure about sure about it in the first place. It may have been changed in America. There's been some talk about the word whore is not suitable for cinema marquees. I mean, only in America for some bizarre reason. The king is in love. People do crazy things when they're in love. I think the theme of love, what you do when you're in love and how you react to each other is universal and across all time. So, I mean, this would probably speak to his performances uh, Shakespearean performances as well. He seems to like finding a pattern across all acting, across all the ages. And then in 91, he did The Rocketeer. I've not seen The Rocketeer. Have you two? I imagine you both have. Yeah. It's fantastic film. E- saw it at the cinema. Excellent. Yeah, I saw it at the cinema as well. And it's on Disney Plus as well. It's a fantastic film. It's not a fantastic <laughs> film. But I do remember fondly watching it as a nine-year-old. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, so this is a um, another period. But it's a period superhero film. So you should be doing this one as well. Uh, it's from uh, Walt Disney Pictures and features Jennifer Connelly. Uh, Timothy Dalton is in it as Neville Sinclair, a role that was offered to Jeremy Irons and Charles Dance, but they turned it down. And then it was offered to T. Dalts. Yeah, it's set in 1938 in LA. And it's a stunt pilot, Cliff Saccord, who stumbles upon a rocket-powered jetpack. What are your thoughts yeah. on this? I've not seen it, so... What? Oh, God. I mean, like back in the, the olden days, all you need to do to make someone a superhero is give him a jetpack. Jet he's yeah. not a very good superhero. It's all he can do. Like, if he gets in a fight, he's still... <laughs> it's say, just got no abilities. The, I don't think he even uses a jetpack to fight. The, the character that Dalton plays is great. It's very Errol Flynn-inspired. He's an actor who is um, tied up with the mob somehow. And Howard... Oh, I always get it wrong. Which is the one with the av- which is the aviator? Howard Hughes, Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes, Howard- Bruce Bruce Goose. Yeah, I think he's the bad guy in it. I can't. I, th- I could be wrong, but it's a stylish film. It's by Joe Johnston, who mm. went on to direct Captain America: First Avenger. Really? Yes, right. and uh. he also designed Boba Fett. So, um, ah, we'll yeah, back there, there you go. To, uh, yeah, there we go. What did I slip that we'll in? Bring it back to Star Wars. Uh, um, so Dalton said, you've got to enjoy a villain, I think. I mean, in a certain kind of movie, a bad guy can just be a really hateful sort of guy. But in this kind of movie, you know, it's entertainment. It's a wonderful sort of show. You've got to like the villain. The difficult thing for me was how to create a situation where you don't like him too much. You essentially should love the performance and not the guy, not the man, because after all, he is a Nazi. 
you shouldn't miss miss him when he goes. You should miss the performance. So then we go on to away away from the the films. He starred in a play uh, called Love Letters. Have you heard of Love Letters before? No. It's a bit of an institution in the acting world that I'd never heard of, but it's 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 quite interesting. It uh, started in 1991. Actually, it might have been a bit earlier than that. It's, it's like a long-running thing. It's been going for years and years. It was a play written by A.R. Gurney, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for drama at some point. Um, and the whole play just centres on two characters. It's a an epistolary form of play, if you've ever heard of that. No. Basically, it means that you're reading stuff in the play. So the beauty of the play is that there's two characters and they're reading letters and they're reading documents and stuff like that. So you don't actually have to remember any lines in the play. So that's why it's so popular. Mm. It's a bit of a rites of passage because you can do it like anybody can do it. So a lot of there's so many people who have played in it because you don't have to like learn the lines basically. So you can it's really easy to do. So it gets a lot of really high profile profile people doing it. So it's it's all about this couple. Uh, well, they're not a couple, but they these two people spend years and years apart, but they're in love and they write stories about their lives. They get married and all this kind of stuff, and eventually they're at the end of it and then they're reading these kind of documents and things out to each other. Sounds like quite an interesting plan. I'm surprised we've never heard of it before. But it opened uh, it opened in 1989, and it was originally Kathleen Turner and John Rubenstein, Off-Broadway Promenade Theatre. Other people that have done it, I mean, there's loads. There's a list of about 200 people that have done this play that are quite high profile. William Hurt, Christopher Reeve, Christopher Walken, Charlton Heston and his wife, Robert Wagner uh, and Jill St. John. Uh, who was Robert Wagner's wife at the time? Still is. Bond reference there. Uh, Mel Gibson, Sissy uh, Spacek, Brooke Shields, Sigourney Weaver, and Jeff Daniels did it in 2007. And interestingly, in May last year, Sally Field and Brian Cranston performed a version uh, during the COVID 19 pandemic last year. Because ah, it lends itself very well to, to, to be, being done without actually needing to be there. Yeah. But yeah, Timothy Dalton was in it in 1992. Couldn't really find out a lot about his version of it, but apparently did quite well. So yeah, I, that's. Uh, I think it was with Whoopi Goldberg, his version. Yes, you're right. Yes, and was I understand they were they dated as well, Timothy Dalton and really? Whoopi Goldberg. I did not find that out. Yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah, but I think it was groundbreaking because it was the first time it had been done with a multiracial cast when okay. Timothy Dalton did it. So. Right, we're going to lower the tone slightly here. So we're going from one of the kind of institutional. Plays that actors love to do to Tales from the Crypt, uh, which we brought up in a previous episode where I go into quite a lot of depth about Tales of the Crypt and what kind of people star in it. And yeah, Daniel Craig was in an episode of it. But then, of course, Timothy Dalton's in one as well. And it was called Werewolf Concerto. And it was in 1992. It's sort of an Agatha Christie, Christ, um, Agatha Christie style murder mystery. There's a load of people at some big house in the country and there's, t- there's talk of this werewolf that's coming to get people. Timothy Dalton plays a werewolf hunter. He, the, yeah, it's, and the whole story is about him trying to get this werewolf, but there's a twist at the end, and I think he becomes a werewolf. There's a vampire. Beverly D'Angelo plays a vampire in it. I hope I'm not ruining this for any listeners here, but I'm fairly certain you're not going to be watching Werewolf Concerto. Interestingly, in the episode, it's actually you, you should watch a clip of it on the whole thing's on YouTube in two parts, so you, you can see him in it. He's he's quite fun in it. It's got Walter Gottel in it as well who was, of course, in The Living Daylights with uh, Dalton, but they never were on screen together in in Living Daylights because he was ill at the time. So they are on screen in this. There are a lot of hints. At the time, he was still playing Bond. So there's a lot of references to Bond in the episode. 
He wears a, a Rolex Submariner, which is what he wears in License to Kill. He also takes a Walter PPK from one of the other characters um, during, uh, during the episode. Um, there's also a lot of references to him playing games, so like card games and stuff like that in there, as Bond would. Uh, and also, there's a some of these references are slightly weaker. There's a taunt where the baddie says, starts saying that he likes playing games, and um, the baddie replies, "That's the difference between Carl and me. I never lose," uh, which is a reference to Connery saying the same line or a similar line: "Do you lose as gracious as you win?" I wouldn't know. I've never lost in uh, "Never Say Never Again." So yeah, that's um, yeah. Tales from the Crypt, Werewolf Concerto. So in 1992, Timothy Dalton didn't star in a film, but I thought I'd tell you the story just because it's quite an interesting one. Uh, in fact, I could do a whole podcast on this film, but um, he was due to star in a film called Christopher Columbus, The Discovery. Because I don't know if you remember, but in 1992, there's a rush of films being put into production to celebrate 500 years of Columbus landing in America. Obviously, there was Carry On Columbus. There was a film called 1492 Conquest of Paradise by Ridley Scott. Um, hold on, hold on. Carry on Columbus was there was a reason for that film being made. Yeah, it was because it was five hundred years of didn't. Yeah, it's an odd commemoration, isn't it? I can understand like fifty years of Bond, but yeah, five hundred years, years is a bit of, much. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, the official Columbus Day Celebration Commission offered uh, government assistance to a film that would celebrate uh, the memory of Columbus. And so this caught the attention of the father and son producing team, Alexander and Ilya Solkind. Solkind? Solkind. And they'd obviously had great success with Superman in the 70s and also Three Musketeers. Anyway, they hired Ridley Scott, but he quit the project to make the other Columbus film. And so they brought in a director called George P. Kosmatos, who was the director of Cobra and Rambo 2. And Kosmatos hired Timothy Dalton to play Christopher Columbus. They also hired, uh, basically they hired Dalton and he agreed to do it on the condition that it had an all-star cast around him. Um, and on that sort of all-star cast, they also brought in God, the Godfather writer, author Mario Puzo, who had also written Superman 1 and 2 to write the script. Anyway, Kosmatos actually then ended up really falling out with the Soul Kinds and uh, he quit the project. And at that point, Timothy Dalton quit as well. And he sued the Soul Kinds for $2.5 million dollars. Wow. Um, yeah. John Glenn was then hired to make this film and he brought in Robert Darvey and Benicio Del Toro from License to Kill to star in the film. Catherine Zeta-Jones was also cast and uh, they offered Marlon Brando $5 million to appear as Cardinal Torquemada. And so interestingly, for the role of the Spanish King Ferdinand, they signed Tom Selleck. So Tom Selleck played King Ferdinand. It went massively over budget. They, the producers of Soul Kinds actually had to file for bankruptcy before the film ended. Brando threatened to quit, as and Selleck basically he said that he'd only agreed to do the movie because Marlon Brando was in it, and if Marlon Brando quit, then he would quit as well. But it was it really just limped into cinemas in August and was absolutely savaged by the critics. Roger Ebert, who obviously we just mentioned then, said of, Br- of Brando's lazy performance, he's phoned in roles before, but this was the first time I wanted to hang up. <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> Tom Selleck uh, won the Golden Raspberry for Worst Supporting Actor and Marlon Brando was supportive for worst, was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor and it actually received four Golden Raspberry nominations, including Worst Picture, Worst Director and Worst New Star. 
um, worst screenplay. So yeah, wow. that was a film that Timothy Dalton didn't star in, but thought was quite an interesting story anyway. Yeah, dodged a bullet there, didn't he? Really did. Mm. In 1992, something he was in was a TV series called Framed, a crime drama series uh, written by Linda LaPlante and based on her novel. And it's a four-part series. David Morris is in it, Timothy West, Penelope Cruz, and it's about a police officer who bumps into a criminal whilst in Spain, whilst on holiday. And the guy is on the run, he's committed a bank robbery, and this is the guy that Timothy Dalton plays, the criminal. And it's basically David Morris's character spends the whole time trying to trying to take him down and uh, get him locked up. Timothy Dalton says, I was very impressed with her script. I read a lot of scripts. It's one of a handful that I love the most. It's rare these days. What's distressing is the ones you do think are great, you don't get offered. The ones you do get offered are the ones you don't want to do. So it's wonderful when something comes along that you do want to do. I'm sure most guys, if you ask them if they would like to fantasise about pulling off the most wonderful robbery, they would all say yes. I don't know about the ladies. We think of how to rob Fort Knox or something and get away with it. Of course, we don't do it, so the criminal mentality is very fascinating. Then in 1993, he is part of an ensemble cast in a film called Naked in New York. This is produced by Martin Scorsese. It's got um, Whoopi Goldberg turns up as a cameo. Tony Curtis is in it. Kathleen Turner, Timothy Dalton. I've never heard of it before. No. (laughs) Lie Down with Lions or Red Eagle, the novel... It was by Ken Follett. It's a spy novel. The The book was called Lie Down With Lions, but the film was called Red Eagle. Another TV miniseries, Timothy Dalton in. And he says, I read the original book, which is called Lie Down With Lions, some time ago. And when I read the first version of the script, I saw it would seem to me that there was something out of the ordinary about this mainstream adventure story. And that, that was what it seemed to be centre on. A rather interesting love story about a woman and two men, both of whom betray her did do very well um reviews aren't great so yeah nothing much to to write about in that those those two couple of years interesting isn't it that he's bond but he's not getting these these big roles as he's waiting for bond it's kind of rocketeer is probably the biggest thing he does isn't it yeah yeah you can't really tell with dalton though because you know a lot of the choices he makes are probably about you know, the acting role as opposed to the big films. He definitely doesn't seem to be chasing big films at really any point in his career. Yeah. But then he moved on to doing something that's a bit bit higher profile, Scarlet, which was a TV series in nineteen ninety four. It was American six hour well, six hours of episodes, um, miniseries. And it's based on a book called Scarlet that was that was brought out in 1991 and i didn't know a lot about this but i kind of i knew i've heard of it people talk about it before but i've never really looked into it it's it's a book written by alexandra ripley and it's a sequel to gone with the wind margaret mitchell's book in 1936 so it kind of continues the story of gone with the wind and you find out what happens to rhett butler and scarlett o'hara afterwards it was quite a big deal. It was filmed at 53 locations across the United States and abroad. It had a pretty big cast. It wasn't massive. It had, um, as well as Timothy Dalton, it had Sean Bean in it, who's, who's like the main baddie, and uh, Joanne Wally Kilmer, who is, I think you'd know if you saw her. She's she's in Willow, but she also used to be married to Val Kilmer. Um, and she plays Scarlett O'Hara uh, with Dalton as Rhett Butler. 
yeah, it's it, it did pretty well. Got a 6.5 out of 10 rating on IMDb. Got a fairly good response, I think, when it came out. It's a, it's a bit of a funny series, really, because it's one of those ones that kind of takes something like Gone with the Wind and uses the popularity of that film or, or book and then tries to play out the story. So Rhett Butler is no longer in a relationship with Scott O'Hara and there's a lot of stuff that goes on. But it gets quite dark i think so sean bean plays the kind of main baddie in it and he's like sexually abusing women and all sorts of stuff going in it so it certainly sounds like it goes a little bit more in depth than most of the film so um so yeah it was a bit i looked at an interview that where he was um on tv talking about the role and he was saying the reason he took it was because not because he wanted to try and play against rhett butler or uh, Clark gable who, who played him but because it was a completely different story. So it's almost like it's very loosely based on the original book and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it looked uh, an interesting move for him. And I think it's quite a, did quite well. After that, it, well, around the same time in 1994, he, this is quite a small one. He did a reading of Peter and the Wolf to, every time I read about it, it says sell out crowds at uh, the Los Angeles Hollywood Bowl. And really this was, it was a show put on by uh, the Hal orchestra which is an orchestra from manchester it's like a big show it's like lots of opera classical music all this kind of stuff and they do interesting things in there so uh, so tiffany dalton was reading prokofiev's peter and the wolf over classical music but i read some reviews of it and apparently uh, well, i found one review um which was I, th- I think it was by the la times or something that was just panning this whole show as being really lackluster classical music but dalton got a bit of a nice review in it they said uh, another British actor, Timothy Dalton, brought welcome wit, reserve, and verbal point to the spoken lines accompanying Prokofiev's Preacher in the Wolf. But the unmotivated conducting of uh, Nagano and the characterless playing of his Halley band fell short of true effectiveness. So, sounds like he could do a good job. But, yeah, there's not a lot more about that, really. Yeah, so all this time he is still James Bond. He's the John- James Bond of, of record. Um, but there are no James Bond films being made. It's been... So at 1994, now it's been five years since the last James Bond film was made. What had happened after Licence to Kill was uh, Barbara Broccoli had joined the production team and, and, and they sort of mo- were moving on to Passages New. John Glenn and Richard Maybaum were let go um, and they were looking ahead to the future. One of those parts of the future, unfortunately, was Cubby having to explore options for selling Danjak because of a situation that they had got into with MGM and United Artists. So United that was the studio that they were partnered with because of the situation with Harry all those years ago. MGM United Artists had been taken over by a company called Pathé and the person behind that deal was a guy called Giancarlo Peretti. And what basically, we'll probably do a bit more of this down the line, but um, to do the deal, Peretti had sold the TV and home video rights to James Bond at a very low rate. And he used the sale of them to fund the purchase of MGM UA um, using loans with a bank called Credit Lyonnaise. Because of this situation, Cubby had sue, uh, had gone out to sue uh, Peretti over the situation. And, and that was why Cubby was exploring options for selling Danjack. It was all part of a big bargaining tool against it. Basically, Peretti's financial dealings went bust and the bank, Credit Lyonnais, took control of the studio. And so there was litigation going backwards and forwards over Bond and and the studio and MGM. Eventually, the litigation was settled in 1993. But this had basically been going on since License to Kill. So then in 1993, 
Bond 17 was announced by MGM and was developed with Timothy Dalton in mind. However, it didn't look like that idea would stick around for a while. And it was this point that Dalton, unfortunately, departed the role. But um, so this is quotes from Jeff Kleeman. He was the former United Artists vice president. He said... The Dalton Bonds had not performed significantly well at the box office. We were trying to grapple with the fact that the Dalton movies were not the most beloved of Bond films. We were trying to introduce Bond to a new audience. It seemed counterintuitive to what we were trying to accomplish to continue with Timothy at this point. So because of the long wait, they felt they needed to relaunch Bond for the 90s and they felt that Dalton wasn't the man to do it. They needed a fresh start. So this is in an interview with MI6. They said, uh, this is Kleeman talking again. He said, Cubby, Barbara and Michael initially said, yeah, we're excited about making another Bond movie. Timothy is ready to go. Let's do it. And there was a difficult moment for everybody because Eon really believed in Timothy and loved Timothy. And I understand why. He's a great actor, but he wasn't the version of Bond that John Kelly and I had in mind. John Kelly is the other person at MGM in charge. We all had to talk it through and come to that consensus. And Kleeman says, Cubby put his hand around the walking stick and it, and we all quieted and turned to him and he said, all right, we'll go with a new Bond. So it was kind of hashed out in this meeting that they would have to go with a new Bond. In another interview, Kleeman changes what Cubby said and, and recalls that Cubby said, let's go with Pierce. So they already had Pierce like lined up to take over. The flip side is Timothy had... This is what Timothy Dalton said about leaving. He said, I was asked if I would come back and I said, well, I've actually changed my mind a little bit. I would like to come back and do one. And Cubby told him, you can't do one. There's no way. After a five year gap between movies, you can't come back and just do one. You have to plan on doing four or five. And I thought, oh, no, that would be the rest of my life. It's too much. So it seems like there's two sides to the story. Timothy Dalton saying he wants to come back and do one. The studio saying they didn't want Timothy Dalton to come back. So it's hard to know what the actual truth Mm. is behind the situation. But anyway, at the time, they told Dalton that MGM UA didn't want him to come back. They wanted to do with a new Bond. And on 12th of April 1994, Timothy Dalton issued a statement. It said, even though the Broccoli's have always made it clear to me that they want me to resume my role in the next James Bond feature, I have now made this difficult decision. The Broccoli's have been good to me as producers. They have been more special as friends. And Eon, they uh, released their own statement and said, we have never thought of anyone but Timothy as the star of the 17th James Bond film. We understand his reasons and will honour his decision. And John Kelly said, we are proceeding with the project as planned and will meet our targeted summer 1995 release date. So I found it quite hard to find out what Timothy thought of the of the decision. He's talked about it a bit in recent years. But there is one quote which I wasn't able to sort of source where it came from. I'm sure someone listening to this will be able to let us know where this quote is from. But he says, I was driving along one day and I saw a James Bond billboard with pictures of Sean Connery, Roger Moore and Piers Brosnan, but not me. And I felt free as a bird. So I felt like after five years of waiting, he probably was over it. Mm. I think he was done waiting. Yeah, sad really. I think everyone would have, it would have been interesting to see what a third Timothy Dalton film would look like, but we'll never get the chance to see that. Well, it's funny you say that. Take Jump in the what if machine. So first off, just want to uh, reference The Lost Adventures of James Bond by Mark Edlitz, which we have, we've said about before. It's 
it's fa- fantastic. I haven't read it front to back, but you can pick up anywhere in the book and it's just gripping stuff. It's it's fantastic. It's great. And so that's where these come from, but highly recommended. So there was a draft of Bond 17 and it was written by Michael G. Wilson and Alphonse Ruggiero Jr. And the film, it features lots of disasters and it's it's like featuring robotics. So it's quite ahead of its time, I guess, or or maybe not. Maybe it's what they were all doing in the 90s because Terminator was around about then, wasn't it? So they're, they're probably going down that route. And it would travel from a Scottish chemical plant to a Chinese atomic power plant. And Bond would be teamed up with ex-CIA agent Connie Webb and they would encounter a robot that was so realistic that one of the big reveals at the end would be that it's a, it's a robot. So similar to Terminator 2, I guess, again. And then eventually it all revealed that the industrialist Sir Henry Ching was behind all these plots and he was aiming to create chaos between UK and China. It revolved around microchips, so the specially manufactured microchip. Sir Henry gains the ability to sabotage devices. So this is quite ahead of its time. You would expect that from a film now with the use of you know, Wi-Fi and drones. So he would yeah, he would use these chips to create disasters, but from, from a distance. Bond would then save the day at the end, in the end. Um, he would stop a missile strike on Shanghai and then he floods the lair of Sir Henry Ching. So that's one draft. That's the initial treatment. And then after that, the rough bones of the ideas were then taken by writers William Osborne and William Davis. And they did films such as Twins and Stop or My Mum Will Shoot. And so they were brought on to to make it a more comedic version, I guess, more Roger Moore based. Very much a similar to in flavour as well to Never Say Never Again in the sense that it's all like they're acknowledging that he's an older Bond with gags about a bomb disposable unit, disposal unit, calling him R2-D2, participating in rodeo. I mean, it's it's all Roger Moore sort of territory. Connie Webb also appears in this draft as well, and also got a few quips of her own. And then this draft sees Sir Henry Ferguson as the antagonist. And instead of microchips, it's uh, a pro- advanced prototype plane that causes a huge complication. So a drone, maybe, similar sort of thing to that and then if if bond doesn't save the day the plane causes china to launch missile missiles on washington and, and london but obviously bond saved us that saves the day and this one yeah this was very much heavy on the humor so there's those those two for bond 17 uh and there's also another one called reunion with death so this would this was also see humor as well and would uh, take place in tokyo with members of the y- yakuza Bond would create allies while he's over there. But the meat of the plot was an assassination attempt on Sir Robert Gray, who was uh, the friend of M. So they took slight uh, part of this. If you remember, what's the name of the guy in The World Is Not Enough who dies? Sir Robert. It's not Gray, is it? But it's King. Sir Robert. King. That's it. Yeah. So similar sort of thing. They've taken that from this sort of idea. Um, and then... Nakasone, the bad guy, is trying to corner the market in computer chips. So back to computer chips on this one. Bond succeeds, and his the Bond girl that he's fallen for, Mashiko Nakasone, dies, and 
he grieves. And it's the, similar to what happened in at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And uh, there's a further one. I mean, all these just... It's 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 fascinating to think what what could have been. This is Bond fifteen. So this was an idea from Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson, and this was Dal- going to be Dalton's first film, and it was going to be a period piece. So Wheatley should be covering this. But a, a nineteen 19- I'm all is I'm all is <laughs> nineteen seventy two. So this would be him. We'd watch him growing as a double A double O agent under M. And so it'd be an origin story, uh, completely fr- from the start. It, we would meet James Bond, and it would show us his life, his life as a young man, gambling, drinking. Bond's grandfather and aunt are introduced at the Bond family's ancestral home, and Bond decides to join the service. Basically, he agrees to go on with them, and he's 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 happy with that. And he has a mentor called Bart Trevor, and we learn that he has recruited Bond into a mission to kidnap and kill General Quang. So he's basically just taken Bond to use him. Bond, being very new and green-eyed, he learns how to become the double O agent in this, and he takes on the number of his dead mentor. So he then takes on 007, and it finishes with M sending Bond to Crab Key in search of Dr. No. That Of the three, that sounds the most interesting, doesn't that's, it? That's the one that I... Yeah, that's the one that I would like to see. Um, I'd like to see it, but I think it'd be rubbish. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, we, we did the origin story a little bit in Casino Royale, but I wouldn't be surprised if they aren't considering a Bond being recruited to the service story. Really? Don't you think? It feels like the only unexplored option left. It's I, think, that- I think it's possible, but I think in tandem with... I don't think they're going to... I think well, that's probably something that's probably part of the sort of Amazon deal where they might have different tendrils going off to try different things but mm-hmm. I, I feel that they continue the normal Bond series but then go and we're going to do a, a you know like a origin story but I don't it's too risky to completely go to an origin story because people just won't want it and, and origin stories are notoriously risky anyway like they, they're hit or miss aren't they but would would you would you see them go in period or modern no I think they'd just do it modern I don't think they'd risk going back in time because the charm for me in that one is that, that it's period. Yeah. It's, well, it's too, we'll see. There's too many elements. Doing a period and an origin at the same time is very risky. Mm. Doing a period set like it is now, but just a period, it works. Doing an origin set now works as well. It's just a bit... You don't want to go too far, do you? Because it's too much of a gamble. And we, and Bond, the Bond films don't gamble that hard. They yeah. only change a bit. But these are all in the archives, so who knows what they'll use. Yeah. I'm sure Amazon's going for him now. <laughs> and so just to, to to touch on, we spoke about his relationship with the Broccoli family. Um, he was actually a pallbearer at Cubby Broccoli's funeral in mm. 1996. And that, that's down to the relationship he had with, with the family. And there's a there's a photograph on, if you Google it, you can have a look at him carrying the the coffin. That shows you how, how strong that relationship was, doesn't it? I mean, they're not just going to let anyone mm. do that. Uh, no other Bond did it. I've got a quote from Cubby that said, uh, for the first time, an actor called me up and said, Cubby, I had a delightful time on this picture. It was one of the most enjoyable films I've ever worked on. Everybody was sensational and I want to thank you. That never happened before. So that was after uh, Living Daylights. Dalton... Yeah, normally gets Dalton. vocal going, can I have some more money for the next one, please? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sick of um, being Bond, I want more money. So, I mean, yeah, that goes to show you the sort of person Dalton is. 
Um, and he obviously it it warmed the hearts of the broccoli family. Bit of a, a side bit of information here. So I'm moving away from the films. I'm going to talk a little bit about his personal life. So in uh, 1997, he became involved with a lady called Oksana Grigorieva. And uh, where did he meet her? Um, well, a little bit about her first. So she's she's pretty big deal in the kind of singer-songwriting world. She's a Russian singer-songwriter and pianist. Her CV is incredible. She studied music in Moscow and then in Kazan. Then she moved to London and she studied at the Royal Academy of Music. She moved to the United States and then she's also lived and worked in New York, Los Angeles. So yeah, pretty pretty big deal. She's done a lot of creating music, teaching music. She kind of hit the heights in 2006 when she uh, wrote a song called Undia Ilegara, which is on a Josh Groban album uh, called Awake. I don't know anything about Josh Groban, but um, apparently that's the thing that shot her kind of to, to stardom. But in 1995, while interpreting, interpreting for the Russian director Nikita Mikhalkov at the at the London Film Festival, she met Timothy Dalton, uh, and then she started a relationship with him, and she actually moved in with him in his in his home in Chiswick. They spent a lot of time together. They travelled around the world together in the Caribbean and places, uh, and they also had a, a son in 1997 called Alexander. And I think Alexander is actually kind of moving into the acting world now, from what I've seen of him on the internet there's a a, there's not too much to go on about this i'll caveat with a lot of this stuff with the fact that most like kind of websites that cover this stuff are not very good websites (laughs) so a lot of people a lot of people who cover this sort of gossip stuff uh, i don't know how reputable they are so i'll try to avoid all of those um but apparently um dalton is really good friends with bill clinton which i didn't know and he took oxana to the white house um and it was around the time that the that the Clintons were having a lot of issues and I'm assuming they're the issues that everyone knows about and Dalton went along to sort of kind of support them and uh, he brought Oksana along and interestingly apparently it caused a problem because Oksana's family uh, not the Bill Clinton thing but the whole relationship uh, caused a problem for um, Oksana's family because they were lived in Russia and they were didn't have a lot of money so they were living around people that were in a lot of poverty so their flat was burgled all the time and apparently the shop was burned down I'm not sure how accurate all this stuff is but you know there's only so much information i can find on these so dalton kind of sent them a check and they they moved away from their where, where they lived so they had a bit of a nicer life then then they stopped going out this the story continues a bit more because this is quite interesting stuff in 2007 oksana was got into a relationship with Mel Gibson um, after she'd broken up with Timothy Dalton. And it was a relationship that seemed like it was going all, all really well. They had a daughter. I don't know how much you know about this. Do you know about this relationship at all? No. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so they, had, they had a relationship. And then it, it started hitting the papers a lot more. And there were lots of kind of stories about abuse in the household from Mel Gibson. There's a big lawsuit around it and it involves child custody with the daughter and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I don't know how much of that is true. I don't know enough about the kind of the story behind it. But interestingly, Dalton come back in, comes back into the picture a bit later on as kind of a support person for Oksana. So while she's going through this whole lawsuit and there's a lot of quite horrible stories that are associated with it but he comes back and he starts helping out and there's a lot of interviews there's a there's a lot of um, articles where dalton's kind of 
you know he's come in to look after Oksana and he doesn't want his son involved in this whole thing as well because he's been dragged into it so he's kind of come back into the picture to, to help work it out so um not, not a particularly exciting or not a nice story but it gives you a bit of a grounding as to what's going on in uh, Dalton's private life yeah coming a father at 50 I think it's uh it's quite interesting I think uh, yeah, his, well, yeah, that's, his, his son looks uh, I've just been looking at pictures of him he's handsome handsome chap future Bond oh future Bond yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. so yeah well maybe he will be he's an actor or he seems to be I don't think he's doing anything big he seems to be doing like kind of little theatre shows but I imagine that's how Dalton started off yeah so obviously Dalton was no longer Bond there was a new Bond in town a Pierce Brosnan so I just thought it'd be interesting to see what they have said about each other and they it's, it's kind of hard to find again like i said there's no book about timothy so it's kind of hard but um in an interview with timothy dalton uh he was asked about daniel craig and he said there's a case to be made that daniel craig is the best bond ever or at least in a very long time with roger moore it was a pastiche that almost became a parody at the end and with piers brosnan i think he wanted to go darker and deeper but that wasn't what those movies were so he doesn't really criticise Pierce, but he doesn't really doesn't have much to say about the films that that, Timothy, uh, that Pierce Brosnan ended up making. I think they Bro- were friends, weren't they? I know there was possibly discussions around the time of them both being in the running for Bond that right they were saying like Brosnan was saying he didn't want to say anything right. because of Tim and all that kind of stuff. Oh, but actually, when- one interesting thing I found, which isn't related to this, but is a bit. Remember last last in the last episode we were talking about if he was. He was offered the role of Bond a couple yes. of times before. In an interview, he says he wasn't offered it. They asked him if he was interested. Right. Mm. Um, but around that time was when Brosnan was also being asked if he was interested. So I think right. there's probably a bit of crossover there, which is... Uh, but it's apparent they were friends, so they probably didn't want to say a lot about it. Yeah, um, yeah. Brosnan, though, in an interview while he was promoting Goldeneye, he was asked about Timothy and he said, Timothy, as fine an actor as he is, couldn't deliver the humour. He was too angry and aggressive about the whole thing. His interpretation was too dark, which I thought was interesting from Brosnan, considering how nice and charming he has been. But um, I think he was just sort of mm. talking about it in comparison to his his version of Bond. Yeah, there's probably a level you get to, isn't there, where you could just be honest about it. And it's, yeah. And Dalton clearly wasn't that interested in it anymore so it's probably a bit of a free-for-all and i think he was just hyping accurate, up, wasn't it yeah hyping up goldeneye as well as being the fun the next exactly. the fun bond yeah yeah he's there to promote it and they've probably asked him what's the difference between your bond and timothy timothy's bond right that's, yeah, that's yeah what it seems exactly like. yeah his post bond roles he focused on sort of diversifying characters he would play and try and shake off that potential problem that most of these act- actors that play bond worry about in being typecast um, so, I mean, there's no, nothing of real note here. Beautician and the Beast, Made Men, The Reef, Cleopatra, Timeshare, Possessed, American Outlaws. Have you seen any of these? No. no. So, yeah, he's he's he is playing different characters, he's playing priests, a lot of detectives and sheriffs, though. So he's not he's not straying too far <laughs> from Bond um, and Julius Caesar. So, yeah, just basically doing a lot of different work to try and shake that off, I guess. Until the fun starts. Now we're kicking on gas. Now now the big <laughs> films are rolling in. And we're, I mean, I can see Brendan's eyes lighting up at the prospect of the next <laughs> film he was in. Looney Tunes, back in action, 2003. I, I've never seen it. Or I think I, at least if I have seen it, it's been on in a room and I've not paid any attention to it. Mm. Uh, the plot, it's a Looney Tunes film. I'm not going to go into too much depth about the actual plot, but it's all about... 
Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, uh, they're trying to help an aspiring daredevil called Damien DJ Drake, who's played by Brendan Fraser. BJ's nodding. He's, he absolutely loves this film. Uh, I'm not. Uh, apparently, they're they're trying they're they're trying to stop um, Steve Martin's Mr. Chairman from finding a blue monkey diamond that turns humans into monkeys, so they'll make his Acme Corporation products. It, it took me ages to work out what all that meant. Th- that's an unimportant. It's a Looney Tunes film. It's rubbish. Don't expect anything more from it. Wow. But, <laughs> give me one good Looney Tunes action film, Space Jam. Well, that's it. Yeah. I actually just looking now. They've only made they only made Space Jam and then Looney Tunes back in action, and then the next one is the new one, Space Jam: A New Legacy. Well, the interestingly, this was originally going to be called Spy Jam, and it was going to be a direct um, ah. sequel to Space Jam. Wow. Um, but I assume that by reading the script, they went, "Well, this has nothing to do with Space Jam, so we can't really have it as a." as a sequel to it but anyway back to dalton um so part of the storyline is that dj played by Brendan fraser's dad timothy dalton is a spy who's been captured by steve martin's mr chairman and there's just like loads of bond references really bad ones just like kid bond references so he's, he's always fighting and throwing grenades in the background and doing stuff like that so it was made because of the success of space jam but it was not successful in the scientists it was a box office bomb uh got 68.5 million worldwide against an eight million dollar budget which is phenomenal uh which is why they've not made many more of them it's taken them so long to make the new space jam you said eight um, eight eight million or 80 million 80 million budget oh, oh right. i thought okay. you said eight i was like oh, i thought cheap. you said eight yeah 80 80 million budget 68.5 million worldwide which mm. is phenomenal for a looney tunes film because you'd expect it just they they always those films always seem to be quite successful just by the nature of that it's got Bugs Bunny stuff in it. But yeah, it was it's the final uh, film to be made by Warner Brothers Feature Animation. So I don't know if the new film's been picked up by another part of the company. And it was also the final film to be scored by composer Jerry Goldsmith, who died less than a year after the film's release. So that was his last film uh, that he'd done. But yeah, Dalton. I mean, it's if if you want to see Dalton play, we talked about this earlier where he does Bond ish roles like they get him to play bond mm. that's essentially this they basically hide him because he's bond and he's like this weird semi bond i don't i don't know what happened to the story and I, there's no way they want i'm going to watch that ever but there you go looney tunes back in action so after looney tunes back in action <laughs> timothy dalton appeared in the stage version of his dark materials as lord asriel who as we all know in a few years time will be played on film by Daniel Daniel Craig. Craig. Yeah. So uh, I won't t- talk about that too much um, because I haven't got any more details on that. But uh, yeah, that was quite a, a popular stage adaptation. But now at this point, early 2000s, there's another new Bond in town. So I just thought we'd visit what Timothy Dalton had to say about Daniel Craig. So talking about um, Casino Royale, Timothy was asked in an interview, he said, he's terrific. I think Casino Royale is a huge step forward, a leap forward. It's great. And Daniel's great. He mentions a little bit about, you know, the the, the Craig, not Bond stuff. Um, but I think we've done that stuff to death. But he says Daniel Craig's Bond movies are absolutely modern, up to date versions. But they're also the legitimate heir of Dr. No and from Russia with Love. Um, and in another interview, he said the first 25 minutes of Casino Royale, I would have died to have done that, he said. So he can see there that there is like elements of that that link his his iteration of bond with the new iteration of bond 
later on, obviously, we got more Bond movies with Daniel Craig and he was asked about Skyfall and he said he was hugely impressed with that. He said it's absolutely time for Bond to get proper attention at the Oscars. At almost every level, this Bond movie is right at the forefront of what cinema is capable of. It's an absolutely modern James Bond, a movie truly of its time. Daniel Craig is fantastic and it feels very real. It also has got a great story about M with a nice streak of cynicism. I thought the film was fabulous. And then here he talks about the link between his Bond and the Daniel Craig version. He said, a lot of people have said License to Kill was a forerunner of Bond today. And in a sense that it was what Cubby and I were trying to do. The Bond movies were becoming pastiches of themselves, but they were still successful and people were not ready to embrace a new formula. There was a lot of innate resistance to change. But now, looking back, it's started to shift. And if you if you just Google Timothy Dalton, James Bond, there are numerous articles now of people saying why he's the, the best, uh, the closest to Ian Fleming's character, and just really seeing that it did it set set that groundwork for what we're seeing now the the gritty take on it and so most of the articles that I've read give the same they're the same core reasons why the, why this is ha- happening the attention to detail is one thing they all talk about that familiarity with Fleming's stories the research he was on set with the books at the time while they were shooting it and just really doubling down into what Fleming wrote that will come from that training that we talked about the classical training and also the the grounded nature of the character. By far, it's the most realistic Bond, the one that you believe exists. They they like the fact that that Bond, well, he sort of he gets hurt, and he stays hurt, so he doesn't seem invincible. There's a threat. Like I know we want Bonds to seem invincible and like a superhero, but if you get too much of that, there's no jeopardy, is there? You're like, oh well, he's he's definitely going to win. But the Daltons, it's particularly towards the end of Licence to Kill, with it being so violent, you do see him, you know, worrying, panicking about, is this going to be the end? So, yeah, I mean, they did a poll with Radio Times last year. So it was like a knockout poll. So in the finalists were Sean Connery, Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. And Connery got 44%. Dalton got 32 interestingly. And I know there was no Daniel Craig in there, but even so, it's pretty close 44 and 32 so there really does seem to be a, an appreciation for him it's christopher nolan's favorite bond which he's gone on record to say he appreciates the the closest the closest to ian fleming's uh character from the novel so yeah and dalton looked back on it uh, in an interview saying it's very important to make the man believable so you can stretch the fantasy whether people like this kind of bond is another question i i'm definitely personally beginning to appreciate I, yeah. yeah, I think it's worth remembering, like, this idea of a cultural appraisal mm. it, it suggests that it has to come from somewhere quite, you know, quite low. And there was a time where Dalton was, like, the, just the byword for being the worst Bond, mm. especially during the Pierce Brosnan era. I think there was, like, you know, Pierce Brosnan was seen as, like, the greatest since Sean Connery. Yeah. And Dalton was, I, was, I think it was Calvin Dyson almost said like the halo effect of being Bond. It's like mm. the one previous is looked down on and then the one that before that then becomes like reappraised. Yeah. And like, so yeah, Dalton was really looked down on. I think also, you know, those films weren't, weren't repeated as much on TV. And I know mm-hmm. we always talk about, you know, the ITV effect, but, you know, people, that's how many people of our generation were introduced to Bond 
through the TV versions. And it was always Roger Moore for me that was on TV. Yeah. That was the one I always saw. And, and to a lesser extent, then Connery. And then just even to a lesser extent, Dalton. And I remember seeing it on a Majesty's Secret Service on TV for the first time and just having my mind blown. Like, what who is yeah. this guy? Like, mm. and so at that time, you know, just Dalton just wasn't, it just wasn't visible. And there's even like, artwork for bond and books and stuff where dalton is completely omitted yeah but now you know he's a really important part of the whole story and rightfully so i think you know he has his place in history it's a shame he didn't make his third film but you know what are you going to do about it but that the um success of daniel craig's portrayal has definitely sort of opened that as a possibility to look back and see how it all started and what they were trying to do yeah oh yeah if, they, if they'd gone full humor with craig Dot would have stood out like a sore thumb, but yeah, no, that it's definitely helped the the appraisal. But I guess the the Bond films reflect the actor as well, right? And he was a serious actor, so they needed to make serious films around him. I think Living Daylights mm. for me is the less, as we said earlier, less successful of the two because it's not as tailored to Timothy Dalton's style. Um, but yeah, uh, Daniel Craig would wouldn't wouldn't fit, you know, a uh, uh, Moonraker, would he? No, I'd love to see it. <laughs> But that said about Timothy Dalton, he can do humour, can't he, Wheatley? Uh, yes, he can, actually. I'm glad you, I'm glad you, I'm glad you did oh, a slightly smooth. strange pass over to me there. So, Hot Fuzz, 2007, probably one of Dalton's finest roles, actually. Uh, he plays Simon Skinner, um, the manager of the supermarket at Samford, and the main villain. In, in, in the film. I'm not going to t- go too much depth about these next few films because I think we all know quite a bit about Hot Fuzz and I'm not going to go around the making of anything like that. But he is fantastic in that film. He plays... I, th- I think there's a certain... You see it quite a lot with actors that are almost... Not typecast, but play a specific role throughout their lives. And for Dalton, he's played a very serious character quite a lot throughout his life. But it gets to a certain age where you can make fun of that character and people accept it. You can't make fun of it younger. So when you see Timothy Dalton in, you know, he's playing a spy role in the mid nineties, it's too close, too close to him playing Bond. It's just, it just doesn't seem right. But you take him, take him another twenty years away, and in Hot Fuzz, he's making fun of Bond, but he can do because he's got that sort of wisdom and you know credibility around it that you can do that. And you see that quite a lot with other actors as well that get to a certain age. Connery when. He did a lot of serious stuff, and it took him a while to be to be able to play the comedy roles well, like Last Crusade. So yeah, I think that's a fantastic role for him. It just hits the sweet spot where people have accepted Dalton as as the, an old Bond, and he can make fun of that now because it's not it's not in the papers. It's not people saying he's the worst Bond. He's got a bit of credibility around it now. So yeah, I think he's excellent in that film, and there's a lot of subtle references i think to in in all of the cornetto trilogy there's always references to old films but mm. there's a lot of kind of semi references to bond i don't think there's any explicit references to bond in hot fuzz actually i think there's a lot of references to kind of 1980s cop movies and things in general but nothing too specific the end fight he does a lot of bond style kicks <laughs> oh does he <laughs> that's yeah. in the mini- in the miniature village in the miniature that- village yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's fantastic. But he's also, it plays not only to his Bond character, but also his acting character, because obviously it makes fun of him for being a thesp, yeah. as well as an, being An urbane Bond. thesp. It's such a yeah, perfect yeah. role for him, isn't it? It is yeah. brilliant. And it's definitely, I mean, every everyone I've ever spoken to said Hot Fuzz is the best of that trilogy. 
the Edgar uh, just Wright because ones, they get, yeah. They just hit the nail on the head. They get the right people in for it. All the characters are absolutely perfect. And him and Broadbent get a lot of respect in articles and things about their roles in that in that film. They're both excellent. But um, and these aren't really to do with Dalton too much. But a couple of facts about the film. Um, a lot of people were saying, uh, a lot of people say that critics, um, many critics say that villains are obviously evil in films that you could almost put a neon sign next to them when they're acting and that just said they're a bad guy and Edgar Wright actually put a, wrote a scene in for Timothy Dalton in that film where he stood next to a sign that pointed at him and said bad guy um, but they just couldn't find a way to fit it into the film but that, that would be absolutely perfect <laughs> and uh, there's a bit where Timothy Dalton raises his wine glass to drink about the death of uh, David Threlfall uh, plays Martin and he looks at the camera and he doesn't mean to look at the camera but Wright looked at that and said right I could take that out digitally but he decided to put the sound of a cash register in when he does it so it actually draws attention to the fact he looked at the camera which works really well in the film but that's just yeah I think that's just perfect role for an aging Dalton he gets some a mixed bag as he got older but that's like him just spot on they just didn't they he was the perfect person to put in that role and I don't think they did I think obviously they got Brosnan in World's End, World's End. Mm. but he's just not. They don't use him properly. He, he Brosnan could have played a similar character to Simon Skinner, but he just doesn't get that that role, uh, which is a bit of a shame, really. Then another thing he was in is he was in Doctor Who in two thousand and nine, and it was in a two-parter. I was in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. It was a two-parter called The End of Time. Any listeners uh, to this will uh, probably don't know that Butler's a massive. <laughs> Doctor Who fan. Lapsed. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a lapsed Doctor Who fan. Well, yeah, you're a Doctor Who fan from this era. I remember you watching Matt Smith, one. yeah. So he was he was in the kind of two-part Christmas New Year specials. So the big ones, the David Tennant Christmas specials. And that was like the peak of oh, it's David Tennant, Doctor yeah. Who Christmas specials, wasn't it? Uh, him and Matt Smith. And then they've got kind of waned a bit uh, since then. I don't think they even do it anymore, do they, the Christmas specials? Can't yeah, remember. New Year specials they usually are now. Uh, well, this was, this was a big one and it was all about... They go back to Gallifrey. It's got the the master in it, and um, I think Dalton plays. Uh, he's plays a character called Lord President, and he's like the guy who comes up with the Time Lords. Yeah, he's a big um, big deal Time Lord, isn't he? Big deal Time Lord, and his outfit looks ridiculous. And I couldn't actually remember when I was researching it. Uh, it's all about the, the big Time War, uh, and they, I think they try and get the Time Lords back from the past. Or something don't explain like that. the plot. It's just all it's bonkers, isn't it, Doctor Who? <laughs> yeah, it's bonkers. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting fact for Doctor Who fans out there and Butler. It was the final appearance as, as Elizabeth Sladen, uh, who then went on to be in the Sarah Jane Adventures. Yeah. So there you go. And then it's got John Sim in it as well. So quite a, quite a big deal, but. I'm not a Bond. I'm not a uh, Doctor Who fan. So I'm not going to that. <laughs> not a Doctor. Then, not, not a Bond a, fan. Got a little Freudian slip there. Not going to bother with that. Uh, and then we go on to probably one of Dalton's most popular roles because it's probably one of the roles that's really made him, you know, accepted from all ages. Uh, Toy Story three and four, where he plays Mister Pricklepants, uh, which is a fantastic role. I think I, I certainly. After watching the first two Toy Stories, and it's I think it's ten years between the second Toy Story and the third Toy Story, that he is the main character for me that just refreshes that whole story. Like they could have gone down the same route, they could have just added another character, but they they create a whole new bunch of toys, and he's like the main one of this new bunch of toys. And it, it, I think he's from. I, I'd look into this, and I, I think he's a real toy, Mister Pricklepants, but I couldn't find any evidence of actually that version of the toy. 
And um, it's called the Weldfreund Collection. I think it's like a German toy brand, but I think it's very old. I don't think they actually looked like that. I think they were actually little hard toys or something like that. But he's the leader of that group anyway. And he plays a thespian toy who is always acting. So whenever the kid's coming in, Bonnie, the other, the new kid, um, he pretends he's acting in the role that she's put him in. So it'll be like, she. Uh, there's a good scene where she puts him in as a baker in a in a toy set and he starts arguing with the the one of the female um characters that he sh- really should be the banker <laughs> and he's saying that why he sh- why he shouldn't be the that but um yeah so i think that's a, a great role for him he's in the he's in the fourth one as well but very only a tiny part. i think he's in some um, of the short films as well in between as, as mr Pricklepants. but you're right in bonnie's room he's one of the funniest people in there it's um yeah it's just fantastic, yeah. and it, it's a it's a character for the adults, isn't it? Who know what he's doing? Yeah. But that's where he's not going for the bot. They didn't use the Bond thing; they used the acting thing, which I thought was a nice, mm. nice touch. Just a couple more projects, and then we'll start wrapping things up, I guess. But uh, he, in, in 2010, he was in The Tourist, uh, which was a film by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who had made, who had a great success with The Lives of Others, but less success with this film. It was starred Angelina Jolie and. Johnny Depp, Paul Bettany as well. And it was a remake of a, of a French film. Dalton plays Chief Inspector Jones. He's uh, he, talking about the film. He said, we've got a criminal in the story who's pulled a big heist of a gangster. Lots of money, millions, hundreds of millions. And my job is to get it. That's why the police is involved. He obviously was very keen to work with Johnny Depp and, and Angelina Jolie. But um, this film was a, was a mess. Uh, the director left the project and then returned rewrote the script in, in two weeks and then shot the film in 58 days and it was very rushed because Johnny Depp had a Pirates of the Caribbean film to make I think it got absolutely slated by the critics only 20% positive from 169 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and it was you know slow bad plot no chemistry between Angelina Jolie and Johnny Depp but it was actually nominated for three Golden Globe Awards um, including Best Musical or Comedy and then Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie Best both got nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress. And it's one of those films where, you know, they always pinpoint, you know, when the Golden Globes got it really wrong. And that's one of them is The Tourist. And even the host, Ricky Gervais, gave The Tourist a kicking in the opening uh, uh, in, in his monologue. But yeah, it was just a dreadful, dreadful film. And Timothy Dalton is in it. So there's that. And then in 2010, 2011, he was in the TV spy drama Chuck. Uh, which stars Zachary Levi. Has either of you seen that? No. I watched, I think, one episode of it. Sounds quite interesting. But anyway, uh, Dalton played... The concept's the, quite good, but yeah. I don't think it's actually that good. The season four sort of uh, antagonist, Alexei Volkov. And again, it's riffing off his Bond character because when he's introduced, he's introduced as Gregory Tuttle. And he's the bumbling and inexperienced MI6 handler for Linda Hamilton's character Frost. So he's sort of playing an MI6 type, almost like a Q type. Um, and then it's later revealed that he's actually this bad guy, Alexei Volkov. And talking about shooting a TV show, he said it was brutal, but highly adrenalizing. Um, I think he just found it quite stressful getting so much in the can over a very short period of time. Uh, from 2014 to 2016, he starred in Penny Dreadful, which is a like a horror drama gothic type show. I've not seen it. Um, I've seen it. It's good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I like yeah. it, yeah. Some bo- good and Bond connections. Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it was um, created for Showtime 
uh, and Sky in the UK by John Logan, who was an executive producer alongside Sam Mendes, and of course they wrote and directed Skyfall. And uh, Dalton plays Malcolm, who is an explorer of Africa, and he's on a quest to save members of his family. Um, And it stars some Bond alumni, Eva Green, Rory Kinnear and Helen McCrory. So there's quite a lot of Bond sort of weaving through that. And he was asked about this, actually, because there's so many connections on on the set. And they asked him if he talked about 007 at all. I would say virtually no chat. We've got friends in common, but no. I know it's kind of disappointing if you're a fan, but it's a job I did 25 years ago. You don't concentrate on the mythology. You just do the job. Ah, no stories. (laughs) Yeah, it's got... Very good reviews. I mean, you two like it as well. I mean, that's rare, it was quite, rare it was, on this pod, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I think, wasn't it? Because it brought together like Dra- a smart version. Dracula, said, Frankenstein, and yeah, all, yeah, all the big ones. Brendan, it was a bit, it's a bit smarter because you kind of the first season was good because it, it you weren't sure who everyone was and you you, you were putting the pieces together and then episode four you'd find out one of them was. Frankenstein, and then it was just mm. quite cleverly pulled together. But the series goes downhill a bit once you once it becomes a bit more like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, he said there is good writing on TV and some splendid writing on TV, but it's not common. So when it's in front of you and it's good, and you've got someone like John Logan and uh, someone like the director doing the first two episodes, you've got to do it. You can't say no, really. You could, but you shouldn't. In Penny Dreadful. You have the characters you believe in, the characters you empathise with. You have to have truth. And then you take them on a really interesting and scary journey. Uh, similar to how we approach Bond, I think. Well, uh, more of those sort of fantasy series. He starred in Doom Patrol in 2019. Still is in Doom Patrol now. Uh, have you both of you seen Doom Patrol? No. Yeah. So it's, a, it's based on DC Comics. Really old DC comic, actually, with like four or five really weird heroes one's like a mummy one's like just energy it's it's quite interesting it's it's trying to tackle one of the weirdest groups of superheroes that dc have made but i was a massive fan of the comics when they're out because they're quite a quite an interesting take on the superhero genre no links to bond but he was in it with oh he is in it with brendan frazier from looney tunes back in mm. action so that's a, a good link. <laughs> the looney tunes reunion we all waited for <laughs> but the series he plays Quite a similar kind of character he plays into in Penny Dreadful. He plays like an older, I think he's some sort of scientist who is trying to help all of these weird superheroes to kind of solve their problems and form this weird super team. Um, but I think you find out that he's caused their problems or something like that. It's all mm. like going along. It's the third series. It's two series so far and there's a third one coming out, I think, uh, next year. It's been renewed anyway. Um, I, I think so, yeah, I think I read uh, that Dalton had to sit it out because he was coronavirus at risk because he's seventy five now, so I think uh, okay. he might not be in the third series. That's what I read. Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, I only got through the first series. I got a bit bored of the second series. It got a bit convoluted. So that's Doom Patrol. Another series he's in, which I've done no research in, research in at all because you'll see why. Tangled, the TV series. Um, I'm assuming you've you've got kids. I'm assuming you've seen Tangled. Great film, great, great Disney film, great great movie. Mm, Tangled's yeah. great, yeah. Um, this is sort of like a 
it's not the same sort of animation. It's like just a simple 2D animation studio sort of thing. And it's it's kind of dumbed down, tangled for kids. Um, he plays Lord Demanitus. I'm not even going to go into the character. <laughs> it's spoiless. But he's he's not even a big character <laughs> in it. He's just he's just entangled the TV series. So yeah, that's that's where we got up to with Dalton. And that's it. He's 75 years old now and um, still active acting. Uh, mm-hmm. Still ready for his Bond comeback. <laughs> Alongside Pierce Amazon Brosnan. come calling. Yeah, yeah. Amazon come calling. <laughs> but I guess that's that's it, really. I mean, I guess um, any, any sort of thoughts on Dalton to sum up with? As I always say, he just right bond, wrong time. Yeah, Could have sadly, been phenomenal. Didn't sadly, get the opportunity. We, we, we said that with Brosnan as well, didn't we? It's just they're either bad, uh, you know, dealt poor scripts or well Connery was right bond right time Roger Moore was right bond right time whether you like him or not but <laughs> yeah and actually Lazenby was right bond but just didn't do it long enough wrong wrong bond right time <laughs> wrong, wrong, yeah. <laughs> no we like Lazenby well I like all of them but you're right I mean I think Dalton probably got the probably the, the most bum deal out of all of them yeah. Um, yeah it was a weird time it wasn't they're just even if it was like you know, it was the right time. The way that all that those films panned out and the the, the delays in the between the mm. films being made and stuff, it was just a bad timing for him. He didn't get a good good, yeah. good opportunity. And the cinema around him as well was changing at a very strange mm. rate, wasn't it? That eight the eighties sort of period, yeah. uh, the yeah. heroes were changing. We had Indiana Jones, we had Lethal Weapon, we had all those yeah. Arnie films. It was very difficult for bond to stand out and actually it's a yeah. mirror the miracle really lies with goldeneye being able to re- rejuvenate it in um well he was probably fundamental in uh, not fair to him but he was probably pivotal in the like making the right decision eventually when it came to uh, we talked about this with john cork as well with the sort of the the bible for coming up with the bond for the 90s but you needed those learnings from dalton to mm. to get brosnan really and, and change the way yeah. it went because it was they didn't do it right, or they didn't do those two films particularly right. There were a lot of problems with it, and um, he's probably got we've got a lot to thank him for for the way that the series has continued since then. Yeah, I read something that he, he said after License to Kill. He thought it would be the last Bond film. He mm. couldn't see it continuing. Yeah, I read that quote. Not just his last Bond film, but the last Bond film. The, yeah, yeah, uh, interesting. Well, if it was the last Bond film, we would we still be talking about it? Yeah, we'll still uh, be doing this for another two years. <laughs> I've got plenty of films to work on. Uh, okay, if people want to let us know what they think about Timothy Dalton, Timmy D, and where he ranks with uh, uh, James Bond, um, how do they get in touch with us? You can find us on the socials at James Bond A to Z on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Yeah, please, wherever you're listening to this, or if you're listening to us on Apple, leave us a review, a five-star rating, if possible. We'll send you a sticker if you let us know you've done that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, tell your We're friends. We're bribing you. We're bribing yeah, you here. Tell your friends, <laughs> tell your enemies, tell your henchmen, uh, listen to the James Bond A to Z podcast. We will be here for a while yet. Still got a long way to go. The next episode, we are back onto the letter D with a more sort of standard episode. Some really interesting people to talk about. Roger Deakins. You always say that. You yeah. never end this going, some really boring people to talk about <laughs> next episode. Roger Deakins, Len Dayton, Paul Dean, uh, the character Max Denby from Spectre, and Dink. 
character from Goldfinger. So right back to the early days. Got a couple of Goldfinger ones there as well. So uh, that's something to look forward to. And then also coming up soon, we've got Diamonds of Forever special, Die, Die Another Day special, and Doctor No. Three big movies in the I can make day. one of those. I can't do the other two. <laughs> Just Die Another Day, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. Never. <laughs> Okay, thank you for very much for listening. Um James Bond A to Z will return. Thanks. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. With music by Tom Ingomels. And artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. <laughs>